Good morning. Welcome, welcome. Let's make our way in, find a seat. We're going to get this party started. How's everybody doing? Excellent. Many of you are checking in your kids still, walking down the hall, but you can hear me out there, so I'm going to pretend like you're already in here. My name is Carl. I'm one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, here in theological equipping class today, we're going to be talking about conflict resolution. So there is a lot of ground to cover. I have many, many things that I want to say, uh, and so we kind of need to jump into it. But before we do, I want to say happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers. This is an area uh, in our culture, in our society, and even in our church where uh, there's something drastically lacking, fatherlessness is, I think, one of the biggest issues facing our world today, facing our church today even. And so for those of you who are uh, endeavoring to be faithful in fatherhood, you are still married to your wife, you are still discipling your children, you're still doing what God has called you to do, however imperfectly, I just want to encourage you. That's a good thing. And so you might feel like a failure on certain days, you might realize that you're a sinful man on many days, But at the end of the day, you're doing what God has called you to do. So continue on, brother. You're loved. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into it. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us. We pray that you'll be near to us this morning. Help us to think about you correctly. We pray that as we consider what can be a source of tension and anxiety and fear for us, uh, that we would be set free and reminded of your goodness and your mercy to us in Christ. Uh, that you forgive us, and so we are capable of and able to and then commanded by you to forgive others. And so uh, we pray that you'll help us to see all of these things rightly, that forgiveness and repentance will be things that mark us uh, as we enter into conflict with one another uh, because we love you and we're grateful for what you've done for us in Christ and that by your spirit we can walk in faithfulness, that we can exhibit the fruit of the spirit that might demonstrate Uh, who we are in Christ, uh, so we might better love one another and demonstrate a love for you. So be near to us as we consider these things, we pray. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be talking about conflict resolution. Uh, I'm going to be walking you through the notes that I've given you there. I I do notes the way I like to have notes, which is where I don't just give you a summary of everything I'm going to say, but rather an outline. You can write down the things that you find helpful and pertinent My notes tend to be much less thick than the other guys. That doesn't mean that theirs is worse or mine is better, but I think they are. Okay? I'm not saying that's objectively true. Just saying I like it better that way, so that's the way I do it. Okay? Uh, As we go through the notes, there are quite a few passages from Scripture that you'll find in these notes. I'm not going to read every single one of them. Some of them I'll skip. Some of them I'll summarize. Uh, But I gave them to you so that you can have them. I think they'll be a help to you. So as we talk about conflict resolution, we're going to try to figure out what is conflict, which I don't think is a terribly difficult question to answer. Then what tools do we need in order to deal faithfully with that conflict? And then how do we use those tools? How do we then actually deal with conflict? So let's start with the first one. What is conflict? Conflict is a difference of opinion or thought between two or more people. It's a disagreement. That's really all it is. That's what conflict is. We tend to think of conflict as only being something worse than that. We think of conflict as being we're yelling at each other, we're angry, feelings are hurt, sin has been uh, perpetrated from one person to another and these kinds of things. That's conflict too, 
But conflict encompasses more than just hurt feelings and angry uh, behavior. So conflict is not always bad, which is the first thing I want you to think about. Conflict is not always bad. We see plenty of examples of it in the scriptures in ways that are not bad or wrong or sinful. In fact, we even see places in the scriptures where we are instructed to enter into it. I've given you several passages here. Second Timothy talks about how elders are required to reprove and rebuke and exhort. This is entering into conflict. Proverbs 27 says, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Uh, there's a, a great passage in Matthew 16 where Jesus is rebuking Peter, says, get behind me, Satan. He has conflict with, he opposes and rebukes Peter uh, in those moments. And so Jesus lived without sin, as we know. And so not all conflict is sinful, not all conflict is bad. We are, uh, we are told to admonish one another. We see that in Colossians 3 there. The, the entire book of 1 Corinthians by Paul to the church in Corinth is an admonition. He is admonishing his people to keep in step with the scriptures. We're instructed to resist or oppose people on occasion. We see that when Paul opposes Peter. He says, I opposed him to his face because he was out of step with the gospel when he would not eat with the Gentiles. And he did that once the guys from the circumcision party showed up. He's like, ooh, I can't eat with you guys anymore. And Paul says, wait a minute, that's incorrect. You're out of step with the gospel and I oppose you to your face. Think of Jesus in the temple braiding together the, the whip and driving out the money changers. Uh, these are times where resisting and opposing people is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. We're told to contend for the faith, to fight for and uh, advocate for the truth in Jude chapter 3. So we tend to think of conflict as something that's universally a bad thing, but clearly it's not always bad. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's necessary. We think of conflict as bad primarily because most of the things that we experience in life that we would consider conflict are bad. I think of conflict as being a time when I'm arguing with my kids, or I'm arguing with my wife, or I'm having a disagreement with one of the guys on staff or something like that. We argue with our spouse, our feelings get hurt, old wounds are reopened, we get into it with our kids and lose our temper, they're super disrespectful, we have a boss or a coworker that treats us poorly and so we go and siphon all the gas out of their car. <laughs> no, nobody else does that? Okay, Jeff, I'm sorry. These are the kinds of interactions that most of us would categorize as conflict, and we want them to be different than that. We wish that they were different than that, but they aren't. Now, I want to quickly give everybody an exhortation uh, about what we're about to do. From here on out, you're going to be tempted to think about everything that I say in light of whatever conflict it is that's most prevalent in your life. If you're having conflict with your spouse, you're going to listen to me talk about the tools that you need, and you're going to think, yes, she needs to hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I hope my spouse hears this. This is important. And then when we get to the part about actually dealing with conflict, you're going to think the same thing. And let me encourage you to resist that temptation. Don't enter into that. Don't think of this lesson as being something for someone else. This is for you. And even now that I've said that, there's still going to be some of you who think, yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. However, I've been super duper patient with this person. I've done everything I could be to be faithful. Carl's not really talking to me. I'm the exception. In this situation, I really am doing it right, and my spouse is the worst, okay? Let me say one more time. I'm not talking to your spouse. I'm talking to you, okay? If you're hearing this teaching, then it's you that needs to be self-examining. God is concerned with how you respond to conflict, no matter how much or how little you're responsible for that conflict. Okay, there you go. Let's do this. 
What are the tools that you need? Well, if you're going to be successful to enter into the work of dealing with conflict, you must be equipped for the work. Just like a roofer wouldn't come to your house to redo the roof on your house without bringing shingles and some sort of magic shingle nails and some sort of magic hammer, maybe a pneumatic pachuka thing, I don't know, whatever. They'll bring stuff to do, the, to do the job. They'll bring the right tools. They wouldn't show up without them. But that's exactly what we do when we deal with conflict. We try to show up to the house with the wrong tools. We bring a stack of like yellow construction paper that's cut into shingle size things. And we bring like the swing line stapler off of our office desk. We're like, yeah, I'm going to re-roof this house. And so we'll spend a lot of time stapling construction paper on the top of the house. And that's not actually going to help, right? It's not going to fix anything. It's not going to actually protect the inside of the house from the rain or the wind or the hail or anything else. We'll staple all that paper to the house. And then we'll wonder why it leaks when it rains. Or why after just one storm, all of our work is completely gone. There's no sign of it. It's completely gone because we're using the wrong tools. So let's take some time and examine what tools we really need to successfully complete the work of resolving conflict. I think the most helpful place that we can find what tools to use is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I've added some emphasis to a few words there because I believe those are the words that we need to consider when thinking about these tools. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. These are the four tools that I want us to think about together. The first one is humility. In order to think about what something is, it's often helpful to think about what it's not. What is the thing that goes against it? What is the thing that's uh, essentially the opposite of it? The enemy of humility is pride. That's because it's easily spotted on others. I can see your pride, no problem. It's very difficult for me to see my pride. And that's why I gave you that exhortation a minute ago. It's your pride that prevents you from thinking that this is something you need to think about. This is something you need to work on. Pride is a self-perpetuating sin. The existence of pride helps you not see your pride. That's difficult. Pride prevents us from listening and from trying to understand. Pride says, I already know exactly what's going on here. I do not need any instruction in this situation because I understand it perfectly. I'm in no need of wisdom from the other person because they're the problem to begin with. Why would I even listen to them? But what does the scripture say? Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9, verse 8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs 12, verse 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. And then in James 4, it talks about what causes quarrels and fights. This idea, this pride that wells up that says your passions, the things you want are the things you want for yourself, not the things you want for the Lord. You don't desire the things of the Lord. You desire your own way, your own will. So then what is humility? Humility is recognizing that there is much room for misunderstanding. So my initial thoughts and my initial conclusions about this situation could and might be wrong. So I'm going to try to truly understand what's happening before allowing my emotions to cause some sort of knee-jerk reaction in me. Humility is believing that God is good 
And he is working things together for my good and for his glory. And so I don't need to fight for myself. I don't need to advocate for me. I don't need vindication. I need the truth. And the truth might be something that feels not great to me. The truth might be something that's painful for me. Humility is remembering that my identity is in Christ and he has overcome the world. So in light of that, I'm going to seek to love this person as Christ has loved me. I will not give in to the temptation to be prideful, but I will walk by the Spirit. I've got a passage in Philippians 2 there. I'm going to skip it for now. You can read that on your own. Second tool, gentleness. What's the enemy of gentleness? It's pride again. The enemy of gentleness is pride. That pride is often displayed as anger. Now, oftentimes we hear these things about righteous anger versus sinful anger. Righteous anger is anger that's directed toward God's will being violated. Think about Jesus in the temple, right? Those people were dishonoring the temple. They were not in step with what God had said about how his people should behave. And so Jesus drove them out. His anger was righteous because it was being directed at God's will being violated. Sinful anger, on the other hand, is directed toward my will being violated. You're not doing what I want. I'm in charge and you're breaking my rules. Now, this can be tricky because Christians know how to pretend like it's the one, righteous anger, but it's actually the other, sinful anger. We know how to pretend. We're smart people. And so we'll say things like, all I want is what God wants. My, my God wants a humble, submissive, obedient wife That's what I want too, and that's all I'm asking of her. I'm just demanding that she be faithful to the scriptures. That's great. If indeed that's truly that husband's motive, oftentimes that husband's motive isn't that at all, or it's a little bit that, but it's also, but I need to be exalted. I need to be made much of. I need to be honored. I need to be held up in high esteem by my wife to a degree that suits me. I decide how much honor and respect she needs to show me. It's tricky. I see that all the time. I do the bulk of the counseling that happens here at the church, and I see that 100% of the time that I meet with people. 100%. That means if I've met with you, I saw you do this. (laughs) But it's okay, I already told you. Okay? (laughs) These things can often be happening together. That husband can actually want what God wants while also wanting what he wants. But he'll pretend like it's just the one. That's difficult. Sinful anger, this is the next one on your notes, sinful anger should show us that we covet something to the point of idolatry. If I'm sinfully angry about something, it's because I fear that I'm going to lose something that I want, this honor, this respect, this esteem. I'm afraid of losing that, and I want that so badly that it's creating anger in me because I do do not want God's name to be made great. I want my name to be made great. Sinful anger results in either explosive behavior, anger, yelling, screaming, smashing things, or reclusive behavior, escaping, running away. We'll talk more about that later. So that's what the enemy of gentleness is, is this pride that often manifests itself in anger. But what exactly is gentleness? Gentleness is resisting this temptation towards sinful anger and keeping silent when you're injured. The scripture has a lot to say about this. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. 
but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 17, 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. James 1, 19 through 20, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Proverbs 19, verse 11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So gentleness is forgiving offenses quickly in order to avoid the temptation to anger and bitterness and all the other strife that comes along with that. Next one on your notes, gentleness is remembering that each person God has created is different. He's created each person differently, and that there is room for those differences. People do stuff differently. And we tend to get irritated by people who don't do stuff the same way we do. I've heard stories of married couples who are frustrated with some idiosyncrasy of their, of their spouse. He always leaves the seat up. He knows I hate that. She brushes her teeth like a maniac, right? I've, I've heard things like this that is irritating, but it's not sinful. Gentleness is recognizing there should be room for those differences. Can I tell you that you're, the way you brush my, your teeth drives me insane? Of course. Are you now obligated to change it? No, but you could in order to love me, but I could love you by just letting it go, maybe not being in the bathroom while you're brushing your teeth like a crazy person, okay? Next, gentleness is remembering that God's justice is perfect and ultimate. You do not have to avenge yourself if you have been wronged. Allowing sinful anger to overcome your emotions demonstrates that while you might say otherwise, you do not believe that God's justice is good enough. You do not believe that God's eternal judgment for this person's sins, either poured out on them or poured out on Christ, is enough. I need that plus immediate justice right now while I'm watching. I need that. Gentleness is remembering that you don't need that. Gentleness is remembering that God's justice is perfect and ultimate. The third tool that you need is patience. What's the enemy of patience? You'll never guess. It's pride. God isn't fixing this fast enough to suit me. This person isn't understanding that it's all their fault fast enough to suit me. I've done my part and they aren't changing fast enough to suit me. Patience is trusting God in a difficult situation, not accusing God of not getting the job done rightly or quickly, not giving God some sort of deadline. All right, God, I will put up with this for six months. And after six months, I am out. I am done. I cannot do this anymore, God. You got six months to sort it out. You don't get to decide the timeline. God's timing is perfect. Patience is trusting God in a difficult situation and not accusing him or giving God a timeline. What does our impatience look like in that situation? It's asking God, how long do I have to put up with this? How long must I endure this? Or I can't deal with this any longer. I've heard this so many times. I've heard it from myself. I've said these things in spite of the fact that I know that they're wrong. This is the plight of the human heart. What we want is what we want. 
that we don't want to trust God with these things. We're happy to trust God when things are awesome, but we want to trust ourselves when things get tough. Next, our impatience looks like jumping to conclusions without taking the time to listen and understand. I think this might be the biggest thing that I see in people dealing with conflict. Jumping to conclusions. Pridefully failing to listen to the other person because you think you've got it figured out already. So let's just cut to the chase. I already know what you're thinking. I already know what you're feeling. I already know what your motives are. I've already got it figured out. Let's just get past that where you're wrong and I'm right. Let's just get to the end, okay? And that leads you to do the next thing, interrupting. I interrupt you while you're speaking because I'm so smart. I know you so well. Surely the conclusion that I've come to in 90 seconds of arguing with you is bulletproof. There's no room for nuance. There's no room for complexity. I'm right. You're wrong. That's where we started. That's where we are now. As soon as you recognize it, then we'll be good. And so I'm not really going to let you talk, and I'm certainly not going to listen while you do. I'm going to interrupt you. Proverbs 18, verse 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. This idea of jumping to conclusions and interrupting is often motivated by the desire to do this last thing, searching for relief instead of genuine understanding and resolution. I just want to feel better. I just want this anxiety and this fear and this stress and this conflict and this difficulty, I just want it gone. How can I make it gone? How can I have internal peace? Because that's the only thing I actually want. Shut you down. Vindicate myself. Me right, you wrong. That's the easiest way to do it. I feel better when I believe I've done nothing wrong or I've already admitted what I have done wrong and I'm blameless now. It's all on you. We're waiting on you to get your act together. I feel better because now we're just all waiting for you because I want relief. I don't want resolution. I don't want reconciliation. I don't want restoration. I don't want forgiveness. I don't want any of that. I just want to feel better. I just want relief instead of actually understanding and actually resolving the issue. Next, patience is a result of trusting in God's use of trials, of conflict, of difficulty for your good. Because that's what the scriptures teach. And we forget all about that. When things are tough and I'm angry and you're hurting my feelings and you said some mean things to me, I completely forget that this whole situation is being used by God for my good. I just forget all about that. But the Bible doesn't. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Number four, the fourth tool in our toolbox that we're talking about is bearing with one another in love. As we saw in Ephesians 4 there. Bearing with just means to put up with, to tolerate. This means recognizing the difference between what is sin and what is not. That is one of the primary things you need to be sussing out as you're dealing with conflict. Is this person sinning against me? Or are they just doing something I don't like? Because those are wildly different but we want to treat them like they're the same. This is all those ad diaphora issues that we've talked about in the past. How do you raise your kids? Do you do homeschool? Do you do cloth diapers? Do you drink alcohol in your house? All of those questions 
that don't have a biblical mandate to yes, you must, or no, you must not, those are things where you have the freedom to make those decisions. And just because someone has different thoughts or feelings about those issues does not mean that they're now sinning against you because they disagree. Disagreeing with you isn't sinful. Unless what they're saying is, I don't believe you when you say Jesus is the Christ. I think that's wrong. Okay, that's sinful. Denying the truth is sinful. But when we're talking about the difference between someone sinning against you and someone doing something you don't like or that's contrary to what you want or how you hope things will be, those are different. And you need to recognize the difference and treat them accordingly. Next, outdoing one another in honor is part of what it means to bear with one another in love. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. That literally means there should be a competition to see who can honor the other person the most. And what we often want to say is, I agree with that. Let's see how much you can honor me. Show me. Show me how much honor you can give me. Because that's what God says you're supposed to do. Show it to me. Rather than saying, I'm supposed to be honoring you. Looking inward for the problem rather than outward for the problem. Outdoing one another in honor. Next, making charitable judgments. What does that mean? If there's a possible positive light in which to see that person's behavior, you should assume that first. We tend to hear things we don't like and feel things that feel yucky and say to ourselves, you did that on purpose, you're trying to hurt my feelings, you have bad motives, you are sinning. I am innocent, you are bad. That's what we tend to do. We do not tend to say, that stings. Mm but perhaps I've misunderstood. Perhaps your motive is different than it feels to me. Perhaps you actually mean good to me. Perhaps you're actually trying to love me and help me. Perhaps that's what's actually motivating your speech and your behavior. We don't tend to do that, but that should be our tendency. That should be what the Christian does, is to say, I'm looking for the good in you. I'm not looking for the bad. I'm not presuming a negative motive in all cases. So making charitable judgments. Next is seeking to understand. This ties in with that whole jumping to conclusions thing that we talked about a minute ago. Seeking to understand means you need to do some things. You need to ask questions. Tell me what you mean by that. Tell me more about that. Can you explain that to me? I'm not sure if I understand what you're saying. Okay, I think, it, I, think I do now understand what you're saying, but let me tell you. Let me tell you what I think you're saying. You tell me if I got it wrong. Okay? It seems like you're doing this for this reason. Is that right? Have I misunderstood? Because what you want is to actually understand what they think and actually understand how they feel. If that's not your goal, if your goal instead is to say, I don't need you to tell me those things. I already know what you think. I already know how you feel. I already know what your motives are, and they're bad, and I'm coming after you. Here we go. My goal should be to find out what the truth is about what you think and how you feel. That should be my goal, but oftentimes it isn't. I should be seeking to understand. And going along with that here, the last one is praying for the other person. How can you be in conflict with someone and not pray? How can you not take these things to the Lord? And if you pray, are you praying in line with what God has to say about things? Are you praying in accordance with your own will? 
dear God, please help them to see. Help them to see how terrible and awful they've been treating me. Please help them to repent for all of their wickedness. Please help them to see how awful that they've treated me and how gracious and generous I have been. Are those your prayers? Or are your prayers, Lord, show me where I'm wrong. Show me my pride. Show me my sin. Help me to repent. Help me to be gracious. Help me to be generous. Give me patience. Give me humility. Give me wisdom. Help me to be a light to this person and love them even though they're frustrating me. And what I want to do is be mean. Those should be your prayers. So there's your four tools. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, can you just do these things? Can you just manifest those things? Can you just be patient because I told you to and I gave you some ideas about how to do it? Can you just have humility just because you want it? Nope. Those things aren't innate within you. What's innate within you is wickedness and sinfulness and a desire to be right and a desire to win. If you want patience, if you want humility, if you want gentleness, if you want to bear with one another in love, you need to go to the source. You need to ask God to cultivate those things in you because they don't exist without him blessing you with them through the Spirit. It is by the work of the Spirit that these things will come out in you. You will try and you will fail. You will pray. You will be earnest in your desire to be humble and God will be gracious to you and give you humility and you will still screw it up. That's okay. But you need to recognize this is a work of God. This is not a work of man. To actually resolve conflict is not something that you can just go and do. You participate. You have a role to play. But the actual resolution comes by the Spirit. So if these are our tools, how do we actually deal with it? What do we do? I think it's helpful for us to understand there are really just a few causes of conflict. There's four general categories. One is misunderstandings. This is poor communication. This is me thinking I understand what you say, but I do not. Maybe I understand what you said, but I do not understand what you meant. And I certainly don't understand why you said it, because I'm unwilling to find out. I'm unwilling to ask you the questions. I'm unwilling to enter into a discussion where I glean that information from you so that I might then better love you. So misunderstandings. Second is differences, differences in values or goals or gifts or priorities or expectations or interests or opinions. We have differences. We talked about this. There needs to be room for differences. I think we should send our kids to public school. You think we should do homeschool. Let's talk it out. Let's figure that out together. It can't be I think A, you think B. Guess what? A wins. Why? Because I'm louder. Okay? There needs to be differences, but those differences often cause conflict. Third one is competition. Competition over limited resources, things there's only a finite amount of. Things like time, right? I'm ready to go, I'm in the car, we're supposed to be there at four, it's 3.52, you're not in the car yet, you're not getting ready, now I'm angry with you because you're stealing some of my time away from me. Money. Why do you always go to the drive-thru? You're always spending money eating out. We got groceries in the fridge. What's the problem? Affection. I think you try to get the kids to love you more than me. They clearly love you more than me, and you're doing it on purpose. You're turning them against me. Because I feel a competition with you over our kids' affection. I feel a competition with you over our time and over our money. You don't honor me quite enough. 
you don't respect me as much as I think you should. Because that's a competition. I expect and demand a particular amount of honor and respect from you. And if you don't give it, then you are stealing from me. Those kinds of competitions create conflict. And the last one, of course, sinful attitudes, sinful habits that then lead to sinful words and sinful actions. Most conflict starts off in one of those first three categories, kind of a non-sinful issue. Let's talk about this. And eventually somebody doesn't like how difficult that conversation is and they, they sin against the other one. And now sin enters in and it's a new kind of conflict. It involves me sinning against you and your response is, oh, really? Now I sin against you and now we got the sweet sin spiral just going up and up and up and we've forgotten all about what we were talking about in the beginning because now you've offended me, I've offended you and we're angry. All of these unmet desires that produce frustration and anger in our hearts. So here's the question you should ask yourself. Whose glory are you advocating for in your conflict? When you're having conflict with your spouse or with your kids or with a coworker or with a friend, is your goal to glorify God or is it to glorify you? My contention is most of the time we're trying to glorify ourselves. Even when we're trying to make it look like a righteous and good thing. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. You know this story? They had some land, they sold it. That money was theirs to do with as they pleased. They could keep it all. They could give some to the church. They could give it all to the church. It was theirs to do whatever they pleased with. And what they chose to do was give some of it to the church. That's great. But then they decided, but let's tell everybody that we gave it all. Because what I want is my glory. I want my name to be made great. I'm not about glorifying God. I want to glorify Carl. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did. And they were struck dead for it. So whose glory are you advocating for when you are in conflict with someone else? Is it yours? It might be. It should be the Lord's. Okay, three ways for us to respond to conflict. You can escape, you can attack, or you can be a peacemaker. You never guess which one's the best one. The first one is escape. Escaping is a me-focused response. I'm going to deal with me. So I could deny this conflict altogether. Just pretend like things are fine. You and I are in conflict. I get mad. We're done. I'm not talking to you anymore. And now I'm just going to pretend like life is awesome. I'm just going to get up in the morning, do my thing, live my life, smiles, happy. Everything's great. There is conflict, but I'm not going to acknowledge it. I'm just going to deny that it exists. That's not peacemaking. That's peace faking. That's pretending like there's peace when there is no peace. So I can deny it. I can physically escape from the conflict. You've probably done this or seen this. Just leave the room. You're mad. You're saying harsh things. I can't deal with this. I'm out. Just leave. Just go in the other room, get on my computer, get on my phone, get in the car, take a drive. I'm out. Now, that can be an actually healthy thing to do if you're trying to flee from the temptation toward anger. You don't want to speak harshly yourself and retaliate. You want to recoup, take a breath, calm down, and I'm going to re-engage the conflict, and we're going to figure this out together. So I am going to take a drive, but then I'm going to come back. But oftentimes, that's not what we do. We leave, and we bolt, and we're out, but then we don't come back. And when you don't come back, you're just escaping. So you can physically escape. You can verbally or emotionally escape. Right? I don't leave the room. I don't take a drive. I just sit here, and I will not respond. I will not answer. I will not talk. I'll just stare at you or not. 
I'm just going to ignore everything you say. I'm not going to answer any of your questions. I'm just going to check out. And then the worst and most egregious version of denying or escaping is suicide. I cannot handle this conflict so badly that I will just end my life. I will permanently escape from this difficulty. That's escaping. The next one is attack. That doesn't focus on me, that focuses on you, right? I'm gonna come after you. I'm going to verbally and emotionally abuse you. I'm going to speak harshly to you. I'm gonna call you names. I'm gonna say things that I know bother you about yourself. I'm gonna comment about your parents. I'm gonna do the thing that gets you riled up so that you won't be able to deal with the actual conflict. Now you just wanna reciprocate sinfully. And I will downplay my sin and I will upplay yours because I've provoked you and goaded you into conflict with me that is hurtful in nature on purpose. I can do that with my words, which is the most common thing. I can also do it with my body language and my tone, right? If you say to your kid, hey, take out this trash for me, please. The response should be, yes, sir, which is a great response. But they can say the correct words in a completely different way. (laughs) Yes, sir. Oh, that's wildly different. You said the correct words, but you said it in a way that demonstrates, ah, you want conflict. You are not trying to love me. You are trying to goad me. You are trying to attack me, okay? So body language and tone can deliver the same message that words can. Don't dismiss those things and don't pretend like they don't matter. Oh, you're just reading. I didn't roll my eyes. Oh, you didn't hear me sigh. Don't do that. Don't attack. Attacking can look like litigation. I literally take you to court. I'm gonna sue you. I'm gonna gonna get something out of you through the court system. I can get so upset that I will physically attack you. I literally will come at you with fists and throw things and push you around and try to actually fight with you because that's easier and brings me more relief than talking about it. And then of course the last and final and most egregious version of attacking would be murder. So escape and attack are not great. But there's something in the middle that's better, and that's peacemaking. Peacemaking doesn't focus on me, and it doesn't focus on you. It focuses on the relationships. The relationship between you and I, as we have conflict, and our relationship to God. If those are my focus points, then I'm going to probably deal better with this. So it's resolving the conflict with reconciliation being the goal. And we're going to talk more about what reconciliation is in a bit. But to be a peacemaker, you first have to do what we talked about when we were talked about uh, uh, gentleness, and that is to, to be aware of whether there's sin or there's not sin here involved. Right? How you brush your teeth, how full does the trash need to get before you're take, supposed to take it out, what exactly does clean your room mean to your kids? Those things aren't sinful issues, but they can create conflict. Okay? So the first place to begin with non-sinful conflict should be a genuine attempt at negotiation, trying to find a compromise, taking into account all the tools that we talked about before, being humble, being gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love, actually doing those things and negotiate to try to see if you can come to an agreement or a settlement over the issue. Listen, I'll just lean over further into the sink so you can't see my maniac toothbrushing. Hey, I appreciate that. Done, right? Rather than, what's the problem? I just brush my teeth the way I brush my teeth. My mom taught me. You're just going to talk to me like that? Okay, okay, you're just going to talk to me like that? Well, I'm just going to brush my teeth like this more. <laughs> right? What is that? But that's what people do. That's what you do. That's what I do. 
Don't try to pretend like you don't do that, okay? Maybe not about the toothbrushing, but whatever. So you try to negotiate, you try to reach a compromise, you try to work it out together with the goal being a restoration and a reconciliation of the relationship between the two of you and between you and God so that you're honoring God in the way that you love one another even in the midst of conflict. If negotiation doesn't produce any fruit, then arbitration might be necessary and helpful, which means to just simply bring other people into the conversation. Can you help us resolve this? We're having trouble. Now, if that were to be something you pursue, that help should involve hearing from both parties. Right? This helper should come in and hear what I gotta say and hear what you gotta say. And it should also involve the two of us being able to interact with one another. There should be some measure of cross-examination that is a part of that mediation. There should be some measure of you saying, here's the charge you have against me, and I'm able to speak to your charges. And I'm able to say, this is what I find bad or wrong in you, and you're able to speak to those things. And we have someone helping us navigate that together. That's not just some made-up idea. It's not just some courtroom thing. It's biblical. Proverbs 18, 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So that is a necessary component of the puzzle. But if we're dealing with sinful conflict, you have actually sinned against me, then part of that is knowing whether it's sinful or not. Is the thing that they've done and said in violation to something God has commanded? Has God said, don't do that, but they've done it? Or has God said, you must do this, but they haven't? That's sin. And if they've sinned, then we've got a very clear outline of how to handle that in Matthew 18. But if it isn't sin, and you want to treat it like it's sin, what does that say? What does that say when you say, here's an offense that needs to be dealt with, but God says, no, it isn't. It isn't an offense that needs to be dealt with. If God doesn't count it as sin, but you do, what does that say? What does that say about where you are? Where are you in the hierarchy of authority in the world? It sounds like you're somewhere over God. You're the one deciding what sin is. But God decides what that is. So Matthew 18 is dealing with actual sin. We know this. We've read this. We've talked about it before. I'm not going to read the whole passage. You go to your brother, and if you win them over, great. If you don't, take someone else with you. If you still don't win them over, tell it to the church. If they don't listen, then you treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. But let's be clear. When I'm angry with you, and I want to go through the Matthew 18 process, and I go and say, hey, man, I think you've sinned against me. Are you going to repent? No? Cool. Josh McDowell, come over here with me. <laughs> I told him about it already. Did, you're going to repent? You sinned against me. Josh, you listening to this? You're going to repent? No? <laughs> cool. It's going to, church discipline, let's do this. Next member meeting, we're going to get you out of here. You can get this done in like 40 minutes. No. You still need to be using the tools we talked about. You still need to be walking in patience. You need to allow time and room and space for nuance, for complexity, and for the Spirit to work, for the Spirit to bring conviction. And we'll talk more about how you can help with that in a bit. So sometimes we'll look at this Matthew 18 passage and we'll come to the conclusion that the way to deal with sinful conflict is just keep turning up the heat on the sinner, increasing pressure on the sinner until they repent or until they've been deemed an unbeliever and are removed from the fellowship of the church. Well, that process is indeed meant to elicit repentance, but it doesn't address the other side of the coin, which is forgiveness, which is where you ought to be focused as well. Both forgiveness and repentance are required to bring about genuine reconciliation and a resolution to conflict. 
So let's talk about each of those. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a feeling that you wait to have. You don't wait until you feel better. Okay, okay, this doesn't hurt me quite so much anymore. I can forgive you now. Nope. It's not a feeling that you wait to have. Forgiveness is a choice that you make. While you're feeling bad, while you're feeling injured, while you're sad, you choose to forgive. And the reason you choose is because God has commanded you to do that. He does not say forgive when it's all better. Forgive once they repent. Forgive when you've let enough time pass so they can really feel how hurt you are. He says forgive when you're sinned against. That's the requirement. Have you been sinned against? Good. Then the requirement now is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a promise that you're making. Like God makes a promise to you. I will not hold this sin against you any longer. I will separate it as far from you as the east is from the west. God says things like, I will forget your sin and remember it no more. But God commands this of you. Withholding forgiveness because the other person is unrepentant is not going to do anything to help them. It's not going to bring conviction. You withholding forgiveness is not a tool by which you can elicit a, a, a contrition from that person. If anything, withholding your forgiveness is withholding one of the means of grace by which the Spirit uses to bring conviction in the heart of another. An unrepentant sinner who receives forgiveness for their sin is a bit more likely to see their sin and be convicted by it and truly repent. And so you withholding forgiveness isn't helping them, it's harming them. And it's certainly harming you. Colossians 3 is a, a good text, but we can skip it for now. Forgiveness is also not forgetting. Forgive and forget is not a thing. Forgive is a thing. You can't forget. You can't make memories go away. Nor do you excuse the sin and pretend like it was fine to do it in the first place. It wasn't. God says that he forgets our sin. He says he remembers it no more, but what we're meant to do is recognize that the debt is forgiven. That's my job. I forgive the debt that you owe me because of your sin. And so now I do not have the freedom to bring this up and throw it in your face every time you do something similar or every time I remember. Every time I remember, I'm required to forgive you again. You choose to forgive, and then tomorrow when you wake up and you're angry about it again, you choose to forgive. And when you wake up next week and you're angry about it again, you choose to forgive. Think of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph, by all accounts, a relatively foolish, arrogant young man who loved telling his brothers about the dreams that made them look subservient to him. Hey, guys, I'm telling you about the sweet dream I had. Were well, you bowing down to me? So cool, so cool. You're bowing down to me, and I'm the best. That's probably frustrating for them. They certainly handled it poorly. They sinned against him. It seems like what happened as you read that story is there's a little bit of focus on the sin and a ton of focus on the response. That story is mostly about how does Joseph respond to that sin? How does he respond? It seems like God is more concerned with the response to an offense than he is with the offense itself. When his brothers show up, he says, I see it now. God has cultivated gentleness and forgiveness in my heart. And I see now what God was up to. And you have no debt to, to repay me. You are forgiven. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. And I know that's true. We should be focused on our response more than the offense itself. 
Forgiveness is the clearing of a debt. It's cancellation of debt, while also knowing that there's no guarantee that the person isn't going to do it again. God doesn't demand that guarantee from us. God doesn't say, okay, listen, I sent Jesus. He died for you. He raised from the grave. You're all set to go. But I need you to guarantee for me in the future you're not going to sin again. He doesn't do that. He says, I forgive you for your sin. And when you sin again, I will forgive you then too. God doesn't make a a demand from us that we guarantee something against future sin. Neither should we. We should not look at someone who has sinned against us and say, I don't know if I can forgive you because you're probably going to do this to me again. Yeah, they're probably going to do this to you again. That's not the requirement. The requirement is, have you been sinned against? If the answer is yes, then your response is to be forgiveness. Next on your notes, forgiveness is entrusting someone to God's justice, not seeking it for yourself. Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, I'll let you read that on your own. Next, and this is important, unforgiveness is sin. You have been commanded to forgive, and if you do not, you are sinning. There's an old saying that says, unforgiveness is a poison that we drink hoping that the other person will die. It was ridiculous. Of course that doesn't work. We believe somehow that other people's sins against us are worse than our sins against God. That is a common belief that we hold. It is false. It is untrue. The problem is we want a different kind of justice for other people than we want for ourselves. Think of Matthew 18, that unforgiving debtor, this guy that owes this guy a ton of money. He's like, bro, I can't pay it back. That's a lot of money. He's like, you know what? I just forgive it. I just forgive the debt. You don't owe me anymore. He's like, for real? That's sweet. Then he goes outside whistling a happy tune, and he finds a guy that owes him like a buck fifty. He's like, come here, give me my money. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? How much have you been forgiven? And you're going you're gonna to refuse to forgive someone else a, a tiny debt compared to the one you were forgiven? That's what we're meant to see. Unforgiveness is sin. Let's talk about repentance. Repentance is also not a feeling. It is an action. Repentance is seeing your sin, being convicted that it is objectively abhorrent to God, not abhorrent to God by comparison. It is objectively abhorrent to God. Confessing your sin to God and to those who are affected by it and then endeavoring not to repeat it. That requires that you walk by the Spirit, that you not allow your conscience to be seared by your emotions or some weird false scale of comparison. You do not get to see your own sin and then decide that the other person has sinned worse than you, and so you get to, to just wait on repentance. They've been, they've been meaner than me, and so I don't need to repent yet. God demands that you repent of your sin. He doesn't suggest it. It's not a good idea. It's a requirement. You have been commanded to repent. Don't coddle your sin because you think somebody else is worse than you. Of course somebody else is worse than you. There's always somebody worse than you. If you do that, you're teaching yourself that your repentance is dependent on something else. Your repentance is dependent on something other than the fact that you've sinned. And it isn't. That is the only requirement. If you sin, the requirement is repentance. Repentance must ultimately be this desire to not return to the same poisoned well and have another drink. It's a resolution to turn away from your sin and not come back to it. 
Next here on your notes, repentance should not be should not be waited for until you're confronted. Don't wait until someone comes and confronts you in your sin. If you know that you have sinned, repent as soon as possible. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Repentance should be immediate. When you see that you have sinned, repent. That is the life of a believer. Next here, confession. Confession should fit the context. All sins must be confessed to God because all sins are against God. We have a holy and good God, and when we sin, we are sinning against him. But there's another component to confession that we find in James, and that is to confess our sins one to another. This person-to-person confession should fit the context and should include those who are affected by or a witness to your sin. Private sins should be confessed in private. Public sins should be confessed in public. If you're looking at pornography, you should confess your sin to God and to someone that you're walking in accountability with as a believer. If you're married, you should confess that sin to your spouse because that sexual sin has an effect on them. But if Jared Lawson were to come up here on this stage and during a sermon accuse me of selling drugs to our youth, which I won't do, it's very expensive. (laughs) I'm just kidding. If he were to come up here and accuse me of doing that, and then of course it was proven that was not true, then Jerry would have an obligation to confess his sin to God, he slandered against me, confess his sin to me because he slandered me, and to confess his sin to you because he, he, he committed that sin here in public in front of you. You would need to hear that confession as well. Another example, if I were to yell, raise my voice in anger at one of my kids, well, let's not do if, this is not a hypothetical. I have raised my voice in anger to my kids. And when I did that, I had an obligation to confess my sin to God, to confess my sin to the child I was yelling at, and to confess it to my family because I did it in front of everyone. If the Matthew 18 process gets to that final stage of tell it to the church, that looks similar to what we're talking about, but it is not the same. So if we were to get to that final stage and we had to tell it to the church, meaning we'd come to a member meeting and we would share with you someone who was an unrepentant sinner and we now need, we're going to have to remove from fellowship in the church, that's not the same thing. That's a necessary step of communication about an unrepentant sinner who's being removed from the church and the church needs to know so that they can faithfully participate in the discipline process by treating that person like an unbeliever. But confession should fit the context. Forgiveness is similar in that way. In the example where I'm yelling at my kid and I have to confess my sin to God and to my family, it's better for them to be able to extend forgiveness to me together in the context where that took place rather than me going to each of them individually and saying, hey, remember when I yelled at Taylor the other day? Yeah, I'm really sorry I did that. And then my daughter forgives me and then my wife forgives me and then Taylor forgives me. It's better if I do that in the context where it took place. So forgiveness is similar in, that, in, the, in what we're talking about with confession, that it needs to be in the same context. It needs to fit the context. So we said that peacemaking is seeking to resolve conflict with reconciliation as the goal. But reconciliation, what does that mean? It means to remove hostility from a relationship and to bring peace. And this is a biblical idea. 
Ephesians 2, 14 to 17. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus came to remove hostility and to replace it with peace. Colossians 1, 19 to 20, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus bringing peace to replace the hostility, and that's how, he's doing, that's how reconciliation is taking place. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19, Therefore, if any was in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, was reconcil- in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, against them, removing that hostility, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We've got a couple more verses there, but we'll skip them for now. So reconciliation is removing this hostility and making peace. But reconciliation does not mean that you're not obligated to trust each other. I don't have to trust you after we resolve things. It is reasonable that your sin against me would diminish my ability to trust you. There is no place in the scriptures where anyone is commanded to trust anyone but God. You're commanded to trust God alone. It also does not mean that you're obligated to return to the way things were before the conflict happened. You are required to repent of sin. You are required to forgive when you're sinned against. But remember, forgiveness isn't necessarily forgetting. It is okay for you to have concern about future behavior based on past behavior. Now, in a relationship with God, reconciliation means that the relationship has been restored. And we're adopted into his family. Things are, things are great. But that's because a holy God is able to completely restore that broken relationship with himself. That was a one-way street The problem, the hostility in the relationship with God was my hostility toward him. His hostility is against my sin, but he loves me. In relationships between people, reconciliation could mean that a relationship gets restored, and it could mean that trust gets reestablished over time, but that's not how the scriptures describe it, nor is it a requirement. A couple of quick examples. If a spouse commits adultery, that spouse is required to repent, and the other spouse is required to forgive. And while there might be grounds for divorce biblically, it isn't mandated. If that couple stays married, which I think that they should, and it would indeed be better, then their marriage is going to look and feel different for a while. Reconciliation then means that the spouse who sinned against no longer has hostility toward the offending spouse because they're forgiving. And the offending spouse recognizes that it will take some time to reestablish these feelings of affection and trust. And so they need to be patient. Another example, if two Christian business partners have a falling out because one of them embezzled money from their company, the one who embezzled the money is required to repent, which might include calling the authorities if they broke the law, and the one who's had their money stolen from them is required to forgive. And that should end the hostility and it should bring peace, but that doesn't mean they need to continue doing business together, nor do they have to keep being friends and hang out on the weekends. They're required to love one another because of their shared identity in Christ, but that love does not have to take the form of being good bunnies who pretend like nothing happened. So to recap, reconciliation is this removal of hostility and an establishment of peace that does not necessarily include an immediate or complete restoration of the relationship as it was before. 
Last few things. What if I don't, what if I don't see the charge that's being leveled against me? What if someone is making an accusation against me that I don't see any merit or proof of? Well, remember your tools to begin with. You should walk in humility and gentleness and patience and bear with one another in love. And it can be helpful to seek other counsel to help you see clearly. If someone were to make a charge against me, Carl, you are arrogant and prideful all the time and it's driving me insane. And I think, whoa, I don't, I don't think that's me. I don't think I do that. I should go to other people and say, do you see arrogance and pride in me? Please tell me. I need to know everywhere it exists because I need to kill it, right? But I have to be careful. I have to be careful in how I do that. If Jared comes to me and says, Carl, you're just walking in a lot of pride and it's obvious and it needs to stop. I need, I'm just calling you to repentance because I love you. I, I can go find people that do not run in my circles anymore, that do not really know me now. They knew me 10 years ago. And I can ask them, hey, do you see arrogance and pride in me? And I know, Carl, you're the best. Like, ha-ha, see? But those people don't know me. What's going on now? So I can do that. I can stack the deck in a way that makes, makes things look favorable in my, in my case. I need to be willing to hear what I don't want to hear. I need to be willing to acknowledge these things might be true. 1 Corinthians 6 talks a lot about lawsuits between Christians. Paul says it's better to suffer a wrong and better to be defrauded than to participate in a lawsuit against another Christian for the sake of the unity of the body. It seems like there's a correlation here, although we're not talking about lawsuits, but striving for unity above my name might be a valuable and better endeavor. Next, trusting in the sovereignty of God. This is something we should be doing throughout all of this. Trusting in the sovereignty of God. This means that he will not necessarily do what you want or what makes you feel good, but instead you believe that he will do everything that he knows is good, even if you don't understand, even if you don't agree, and even if you don't enjoy it. God is sovereign, and you should trust him. So last thing, a few questions to ask yourself as you deal with conflict. First one, have I really been sinned against, or do I just not like this? That's an important question to ask. Am I being charitable? Am I looking for the good in the other? Am I looking for a positive motive for their speech and their behavior? Or am I just assigning sinful motives where there might be none? Do I really understand this person? Do I truly understand what they think? Do I truly understand how they feel? If I don't, I should find out. How am I communicating? How am I communicating verbally? How am I communicating non-verbally? Do I demonstrate care for this person with my words and my tone and my body language? Do I demonstrate an eagerness to end this hostility and to bring peace? Do I demonstrate that I want God's name to be made great because we can reconcile, because we can find a way to get through this together? Am I walking in humility? Am I walking in gentleness? Am I being patient? Am I bearing with, with them in love? Okay, two quick books I'm going to recommend if you want to read more about this, because this is where a lot of my content came from. Book number one is a book called Peacemaker by a guy named Ken Sandy. It's S-A-N-D-E. And the other one is called Resolving Conflict by a guy named Lou, L-O-U, Priolo, P-R-I-O-L-O. If you want those again, email me. Fast recap, what's conflict? A difference of opinion or, th or thought between two or more people. It's a disagreement, but not all conflict is bad. What tools do you need? Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. How do you deal with it? You need to recognize that there are four places where conflict tends to come from, misunderstandings, differences, competition, and sin. 
Things usually start in one of those first three, but they usually end up in sin. And there's three ways to deal with conflict. One is to retreat, one is to attack, and one is to be a peacemaker. Peacemaking is primarily moving toward reconciliation by using those four tools, by forgiving when you're sinned against, and repenting when you sin. That's easy to say. It's very hard to do. So let's pray, and then we'll be done. No time for questions because I talked too long. I do want to say one quick thing. I taught on family discipleship two weeks ago, and we got 1.8 billion questions, and many of them were great. And at the end, I said the following. Hey, I'll reach out to you and answer your questions. And I'm not doing that because that's meant to be anonymous. So I'm not going to go and look those things up. So if you had a question a couple weeks ago and it didn't get answered, and you're like, Carl said he'd reach out, Carl lied. You need to email me the question that you had, and I'll be happy to talk to you about it then, okay? Let's pray, and then we'll be done. Father, we love you. We're grateful that you love us, that you have reconciled us to yourself by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. It's through his life and his death and his resurrection that we can have life, that we can be counted among your family, that we are adopted by you, that you have shown us the most gracious and loving way to deal with conflict because we hated you and we were against you and wanted nothing to do with you, and yet you rescued us anyway, undeserving creatures. So help us to see rightly this grace and this love that you've shown to us in the forgiveness of sin, that you've canceled that debt, that you've said you will remember it no more, that you will separate it from us as far as the east is from the west, and help us to truly forgive one another and to love one another as you have loved us. Those are things you ask us to do, you command us to do, and yet we struggle to do them. So we pray that you'll strengthen us by your spirit, that we might know you more and love you better and be obedient to what you've asked us to do, to forgive sin, to repent of sin, and to live with one another in an understanding way, to bear with one another in love. Help us. We need you. We love you. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.